0: Hi, and welcome to School of Sports. This is a podcast produced by the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College, where we have a regular series of conversations with the people shaping sports media and PR. This is episode four, the Mike Saltus edition. Joining me today is Chris Hupper, a senior here at Marist. Hi, Chris. How are you, Leander? Good, I'm getting over a cold, as you can probably hear. Eh, That's what happens over Thanksgiving break. Mike is currently the Vice President of Corporate Communications at ESPN, a position he has been in since 2003. He started at ESPN as an intern in the summer of 1980, the second year of the company's existence, and he's worked there ever since in varying roles. In 2005, Saltus was named Media Relations Professional of the Year by PR News. He's also responsible for strategic planning for publicity for ESPN's main networks and also oversees all PR for ESPN's college networks and ESPN radio.
1: All right, we are joined by Mike Saltis, the vice president of communications at ESPN. Mr. Saltis, how are you?
2: I'm doing very well, Chris. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for joining. Um, We're going to start off with the first question. You rose through the ranks from intern to your current position as VP. When you joined ESPN... What do you think about this upstart sports media company from Bristol, Connecticut?
2: Well, it was certainly a different, a different time, a different era. I was a, a senior at the University of Connecticut and had a chance meeting with Bill Rasmussen, who was the founder of ESPN. And, and he hired me as an intern and came to Bristol, Connecticut, about an hour from the UConn campus. And, and it was a, it was a, you know upstart company that uh, there was really a question of of whether there was an appetite for sports 24 hours a day at that point you mostly got your sports uh, in the afternoon on weekends plus Monday night football and the idea of 24 hours uh, of sports a day was something that a lot of people couldn't couldn't get their arms around that, that there would be something like that let alone all the networks that we have today so um, it was an exciting, exciting time to start, but there was tremendous uh, skepticism about whether, you know, whether it would be around, let alone whether it would be around in you know, 2017.
0: And this was back in 1980, right, that you started?
2: Right. Yeah, the ESPN launched in September of 1979, and I started as an intern just before the first anniversary in August of 80.
1: Speaking on that, how has the business changed from when you first started till now?
2: Well, when we started, certainly the broadcast networks were where all of the national sports resided. Uh, And that, uh, uh, you know, certainly has shifted in time, but it was also just a very limited amount of sports that was on, not the, um, you know, round-the-clock coverage on many different networks that you can have anytime you want, let alone, you know, video on demand and personalization and all the things that people are accustomed to today. Uh, It was uh, it was strictly, uh, you know, the big things would be on a broadcast network and, and, uh, you know, you weren't getting every major league, ba- even, even in your local market, you weren't getting every major league baseball game televised, not, you know, not even close. And, and certainly not the case, uh, you know, in the NBA and the NHL and, and, you know, and many of the other college conferences that you're so accustomed to seeing everything that you want today.
0: Going from this small startup company that where it wasn't entirely clear if it was even viable to now this juggernaut, and you know for a long time, I think the the biggest sports media company in the world, just about how as a as a PR man, how did the challenges change within your job?
2: yeah, early on it it, it was uh, you know we were the the little engine that could and and people would you know cheer the upstart and and we were do we were providing so much more to them as a sports fan than they'd ever gotten before. You know, things like SportsCenter didn't exist back then. And so everybody was was behind us. Everybody was a fan of us. And and the kind of media attention we got was almost universally positive. And then when you become as successful as ESPN has become, you know, that can turn a bit. And it's also turned in the sense that, uh, you know, there's so much more coverage now courtesy of sports blogs and and what Twitter has become and, and, uh, you know, all the different... uh, uh, outlets uh, that cover us in an instantaneous manner that, you know, that didn't exist um, back at the time that ESPN was uh, was getting it ramped up.
1: I've noticed you've been pretty active on Twitter recently. What's your relationship with social media?
2: Yeah, Twitter is, uh, um, you know, didn't exist the first uh, 25 years or so that I did this. And when I started to tweet, I thought it was it was one of the silliest things I was ever doing, but it, it fast forward to the last few years, and from a PR standpoint, Twitter has become the most important tool that a PR person has. The media uh, is all on it. Uh, it it uh, is the opportunity to get information instantaneously, to react to things instantaneously. Uh, it, it can cut both ways. It's a great opportunity to be able to get a message out directly, and not just to the media. You, in effect, get Anybody out there that has an interest in uh, sports media, uh, you, you kind of deputize them as as you know if they're interested in putting out positive information about ESPN, you kind of deputize them as as a publicist. But of course, on the other side of it, you know there's that many more critics in the world that can uh, that can you know that can come at you. But social media, particularly Twitter, uh, has become such an important thing from a pr end now in a larger look for espn you know you look at both uh you know the sports center and espn brands on social media and they're and they're huge opportunities uh, to get to connect with fans but to also to get out information about our programming and and uh and link to things that are on espn.com or that we're streaming on the app uh, just this week we've launched a new sports center show on snapchat it's done specifically for snapchat where the exclusive sports show uh on that uh, social platform now and and it's a, it's a new way for us to reach you know particularly uh younger viewers that uh, are not watching as much uh television as uh people did when they were you know younger viewers in, in the 80s 90s and early 2000s
0: from a practical standpoint how has twitter changed your day-to-day job um, how much time a day do you spend on it? How much time do you spend sort of monitoring? Uh, well, monitoring is maybe not the right word, but, but sort of observing what the talent at ESPN is doing. How, how much generally um, are, are you invested in it from from a sort of time management standpoint?
2: Yeah, it, it becomes a challenge because certainly there's, uh, there's a lot of things to do on a day-to-day basis, not just me, but anybody in my group. But um, Twitter ends up... Uh, being a source of information on a positive side that you know what's going on, you know what writers are interested in. But it does have to be, attention has to be paid to, you know, what is what storm is brewing because where the old news cycles were pre-internet, you know, the New York Times or USA Today would work on a story with you and then, you know, the story would appear the next morning and then maybe some others would pick up on it and make it a day-two story. And, you know, that was kind of the news cycle. Now things can just story breaks, you know, immediately people are, are commenting on it, and, uh, and, you know, something can really escalate very quickly. And if the information's incorrect, you got to get in the marketplace and do your best to correct it, which, you know, is a growing challenge.
0: Time for a Jamel Hill question, I suppose. <laughs> um, had you anticipated the kind of fallout that we saw from that, those tweets of hers about the president, where it was picked up by the president himself? Um, she's certainly not the only sports anchor, not the only sports media personality to be sort of vocal about politics on Twitter. But the 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 kind of backlash that she got is is that anything you you had imagined and anticipated?
2: Uh, we you could see it coming and, and building over time. Uh, the fact that the you know the president of the United States was tweeting about you know ESPN is certainly new territory. But the idea that there was a lot of attention um, going to uh, ESPN on social certainly wasn't new, um, and that that's really you know been a pretty big change in time. And then you see that we put out a social media policy and update of that. We did our first one back in 2009, uh, and have really encouraged our our announcers to do two things over the years: one, the basic think before you tweet, uh, without a layer of editors, and without. Uh, the normal news process it's very tempting to respond to someone quickly on twitter and, and those are the kind of things that can escalate and we've encouraged our announcers to uh you know to not uh, not to not to tweet before they think or not to retweet before they think you know which is not that any different than what we would say to people about what they want to do you know on on air on the radio on television what have you the other thing is is that people come to espn for sports and certainly politics uh, intersects with sports. You know, the, the the coverage that the NFL has gotten over the national anthem issue is, is kind of the classic point that ESPN needs to be covering it. Uh, but, you know, the day-in, day-out political cycle, you know, is not something that, that people are looking to ESPN for that. And they're often looking to escape from that when they come to ESPN. And and we've uh, encouraged our, our on-air people to really give that all due consideration, and, and what they're doing on their social media platforms.
0: Do you think that's possible in this day and age to kind of insulate sports from everything else?
2: Well, it can't be insulated for the you know for the point that it mentioned just a minute ago on on the uh, um, you know all the NFL issues with the anthem this year because that is a sports issue and that is a, affecting the conversation around the NFL. So it's important that we cover that, but it is a reasonable thing for ESPN to you know say, all right, we don't really have a place in tweeting about, you know, Jeff Sessions' uh, testimony to Congress. That's not, that's not what anyone is looking for ESPN or, or looking to our commentators to, uh, to be talking about.
0: Mike, we were colleagues for a while. Um, I was at ESPN from 2010 to the middle of uh, 2012. And I actually remember even back then that you guys were putting out social media guidelines for talent. Um, I was a writer at the time for the website. So you guys were pretty early on recognizing, I think, that that was something that you needed to be cognizant of, how your talent was going to be um, profiling itself online.
2: Right. We... uh, we, we had issued a policy in, in, in 2009, I believe, the year, and, and actually there were media outlets that criticized us for putting out a policy that within a few months put out a very similar policy. Uh, we had seen how much uh, many of our announcers were interacting, and, and really the, the policy that exists today is not a whole lot different than what we you know laid out back in time uh it you know the 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 prominence of social media has has grown and you know there are some things different but the the basic approach has been similar over the years and you know we're we're uh now just more in the crosshairs around it and needed to bring an added focus to to what the rules are and making it clear to people that you know that that uh it's in the company's interest that uh, we don't step into a lot of controversies that that uh, we'd prefer not to be in.
0: Over the last few years, um, ESPN has changed in in various ways. You, you've had some big names leaving for for whatever reasons. You've had a few rounds of contractions. But at the same time, ESPN remains this juggernaut within the industry, and it's kind of reinve- reinventing itself, I think, going uh, to, to emphasize different things. From a PR side, how do you sort of sell that evolution when when it seems there is always an eagerness to to make it look like it's really something else.
2: Right, there it, it's it's been we we have an interesting dynamic that many of our competitors are also in the business of of being leading critics of us. And so, you know, we have to recognize and we do recognize that we're going to be getting, you know, from our from our standing in the marketplace we're going to be getting a lot of attention, but from that dynamic we're also going to be getting a lot of Attention, often negative attention, and meanwhile, ESPN is is uh, where we have had our challenges is certainly still thriving, and we're doing new things. The Snapchat launch this week was a good example. We're developing uh, the Disney Company, our parent, has bought uh, the majority interest in BAM Tech, and we're working on a direct-to-consumer product under the name ESPN Plus, which will be coming out next year. We're working on an ACC network that will be coming in 2019. There's new shows. Mike Greenberg will have a new show. There are many things, initiatives that are going on at the company, and it's our job to make sure that we're being as aggressive as we can uh, to tell those stories, to to try to offset some of the things in the marketplace with a lot of the positive stories that that exist here. You know, Monday Night Football is up for the season while the NFL is, you know, has had – and decreases in other networks you know as of november 15 espn's monday night football ratings are up year over year uh you know college game day continues to be a great story the college bowls are almost all on espn college basketball you know wall-to-wall on espn there's a lot of positive stories that we can get behind and that's what our focus is
0: how different do you think espn will look five years from now to what we see today
2: I think that a lot of what uh, what you're already seeing, you know, there, through technology, you just have a greater ability to personalize uh, what you want as a fan. So all if you all you want is, is Marist College coverage, then anytime <laughs> anything that happens that gets mentioned about Marist on any of our platforms, you know, would be sent directly to you as, as you know, and, and easily uh, coming out on uh, in a in a very uh, smooth way on whatever device you want to use. You know, and you know, certainly that that would carry over whether you're a you know New York Yankee fan or whatever it is. So a lot of personalization that already exists, but but the ease of use and the ubiquity of it will will continue to improve. But um, I'm not sure that you will see that dramatic a difference five years from now than what you're seeing today.
0: Last question. You've been very generous with your time. Um, having been at ESPN 37 years. What are some of your favorite moments? What are some of your favorite things to have happened uh, over that time?
2: Being able to see the entire uh, growth of ESPN, you know, from the front row has been just an amazing experience for me. Uh, it, it uh, I've been to many of the the best sporting events uh, uh, that happen in this country. I'm a big college basketball fan and have been to probably twenty five Final Fours. Wow. Uh, the, the, the. the uh, for for as an example, but probably the, the the most exciting sport thing that I've I've gone to in an, as an event where the I went to three World Cup openers: the one in the United States in '94, and then Brazil and South Africa. And in the South Africa and Brazil cases, to go to the opening game where the host country plays, you know, there's just such a connection between sports and the fan that that's on display at a, at a World Cup. That those were particularly impressive moments and things that will will stay with me but there's been there's been so many and most of them are really on the you know the, the interacting with the people here and and being able to see uh, you know all the new things that uh, that the company's gotten into that I certainly couldn't imagine back in 1980
1: all right thank you very much we're going to wrap it up there thank you for coming on to the show mr saltis
2: great it's been my pleasure
1: Chris, what did you think of that interview? I thought he was extremely well spoken and I agreed with a lot of his points, especially the one where he was talking about the different commentators talking like putting their own opinions into things and how that really turns people off from sports. Cuz sports, it's the escape from real life. It's the great unifier. But if I believe that if a player or a team makes political headlines, you got to cover that. Because that is the news, and you got to cover that in as unbiased of a way as possible.
0: But aren't you contradicting yourself? Aren't you saying that sports is an escape, but at the same time, if it does intrude, that you need to touch on that somehow? I mean, it's it seems to me that it's kind of naive to think that sports and the rest of society can be different things, that sports can be an island, especially now that it's become this venue for people to kind of litigate their political views, um, their social views, and it's it's less and less becoming this separate thing. It's it's not like opening a novel anymore, which is stands aside from the rest of your life. Um, it, more and more, it's intertwined with the rest of the news.
1: Right, right. And like, I'm not opposed to covering. Obviously, I think that they should cover right. if players use their platform to promote a cause or something. They should definitely cover that. But my problem is with when reporters, analysts, commenters, anchors, anybody puts their own personal opinion into stuff. They should just be reading out the news and talking, giving out all the facts from what this, say, like, if LeBron James believes this, they should say LeBron James believes this. They mm-hmm. shouldn't say LeBron James believes this. And I agree with him.
0: So you're not hashtag Team Jamel?
1: No. No. <laughs>
0: Don't you think someone like that has a right to exercise her opinion and to, and to to pronounce it, even though she has this public role at ESPN? I mean, when you have a job like that, does that mean that you suddenly lose the right to be able to kind of express yourself?
1: I mean, it's simple journalism f- ethics.
0: But isn't a conflict of interest unavoidable when because sports kind of sits at the center of our society? Isn't it going to conflict with everything by nature?
1: But it's... Not about that like what actually happens. It's about the objectivity of the reporter reporting. The reporter just is the reporter's job is to just say the news and say what happened. Right. And be as objective and unbiased as possible.
0: But the way ESPN has created these roles, especially in someone like Jamel Hill's case, is that they no longer want reporters to just report, right? They want them to be personalities. They want them to be on an opinion show one minute and then be on Sports Center the next minute. So they themselves have blurred that line between what a reporter is and what a commentator is. Like for most of ESPN's personnel, I don't really know what their job description is because they do a little bit of everything. So right. I don't know if you can then expect them to completely keep that separate.
1: Well, that, that's where everybody gets into the tricky part and there's the hurdles. Like, but in, this is my own personal opinion. If you're strictly on co- uh, commentator role, if you're on those opinion-based shows, like Stephen A. Smith, like Skip, Skip Bayless, you can tweet all about your opinion as much as you want.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Once you cross over into that sports news show, that's when you have to be object- as objective as possible. Even if you still do the opinion, you keep your opinion to that opinion show or like, the Twitter account that's for that show.
0: Luckily, on this podcast, you don't have to make that choice. Right. (laughs) Great. Um, Now it's time for our Rick Smits fun fact. As a refresher, Smits was a longtime NBA player and a one-time all-star with the Indiana Pacers. The Duncan Dutchman is also Marist's most famous sporting alumnus, so we've adopted him as our mascot. And uh, Chris is going to read out this episode's fact.
1: Smits was the second overall pick in the 1988 NBA draft. Pacers selected Smiths ahead of All-Stars Hersey Hawkins and Dan Marley, and even Hall of Famer Mitch Richmond, who went fifth to the Golden State Warriors. The only player picked ahead of Smiths was All-Star Danny Manning, who went first overall to the Los Angeles Clippers.
0: Now it's time to end. Our producer today was Matt Zutkevich. Our researcher was Lawrence Lang. For my co-host Chris Hupper, I'm Leander Sharlockins. Thanks for listening to School of Sports.